So just as they're heading out, I'll invite uh, Louise to come forward to read us Colossians 3, 12 to uh, 4, 1. Colossians 3, 12 to 4, 1. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, Forgive as the Lord forgives you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to carry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there's no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we come to another um, challenging uh, reading in the book of uh, Colossians, challenging for uh, all kinds of reasons. Uh, Now, last week we heard Paul reminding the Colossians that their old sinful nature was buried with Christ, and they have been raised with Christ to live a new kind of life. Uh, Now, it could be that some members of the Colossian church were returning to their old patterns of behavior, because Paul tells them to put to death and rid themselves of those negative practices that used to be the norm for them. And there's quite a list. Actually, there are two lists, but I'll I'll combine them. Uh, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and lying. That's what we looked at last week. All of those things will have a corrosive and destructive impact on our relationships. And Paul reminds the Colossians that they have taken off their old self with its practices, a bit like taking off a coat. I recently saw something on YouTube where they were giving uh, homeless people makeovers. And uh, you can see from this photo what a difference it makes, not just to a person's appearance, but to their whole demeanor. And obviously the first part of the makeover is to take off the, uh, the dirty clothes Um, The person has a shower, they wash their hair, they get rid of uh, all the dirt and the grime. Uh, But that wasn't the end of the makeover. Then they have their hair cut and they put on fresh new clothes. 
And it's a bit like that for us as Christians. When we turn to Christ, we get rid of the muck and the dirt and the grime. And we put on fresh new clothes. And that's exactly what Paul is describing in today's passage. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Whereas the uh, previous list, the stuff we take off, are all behaviors that destroy relationships. The clothes or the behaviors that we put on are those that lead to thriving, wholesome, life-giving relationships. I've often used Colossians 3, 12 to 14 in wedding sermons because it's such good advice to married couples, but not just for married couples. It's good advice for all relationships. These are, if you like, the general ground rules for good relationships, the general ground rules for good relationships. And in a moment, we're going to look at three relationships that Paul mentions specifically, uh, the relationship between husbands and wives, between parents and children, and between slaves and masters. But before we get to that, let us hold those three relationships in mind and remember that the ground rules apply for both parties in each relationship. Every follower of Jesus is called to be compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, and patient. So that's what we're aiming at. But we don't always achieve it, do we? We're all very aware that within any family, there is from time to time friction, disagreements, arguments, and all kinds of behavior that works against harmonious relationships. But good relationships can exist in spite of all those things, providing there is forgiveness. Verse 13, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this. He said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive, as we had during the war. He's writing just after the uh, Second World War, and I'll paraphrase a bit, but he continues. Half of you already want to ask me. I wonder how you'd feel about forgiving the Gestapo if you were a Pole or a Jew. He says, so do I. I wonder very much. Just as when Christianity tells me that I must not deny my religion even to save myself from death by torture, I wonder very much what I should do when it came to the point. I'm not telling you in this book what I could do. I can do precious little. I'm telling you what Christianity is. I did not invent it. And there, right in the middle of it, I find forgive us your sins, sorry, forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. There is not the slightest suggestion that we are offered forgiveness on any other terms. It is made perfectly clear that if we do not forgive, we shall not be forgiven. There are no two ways about it. What are we to do? A bit further on, he says, if we really want to learn how to forgive, perhaps we had better start with something easier than the Gestapo. One might start with forgiving one's husband or wife or parents or children for something they've done or said in the last week. And we might add to that list that he gave there of people that we might forgive. We might add to that list someone from the church 
because the church is a family and from time to time we will hurt each other even though we love each other. And the only way to move forward from that situation is to recognize that God has forgiven me. God has forgiven me. Let's not kid ourselves that our sins aren't really that bad. Your sins and my sins are abhorrent enough to put Jesus on the cross. Jesus was tortured and he died so that we might be forgiven. What possible excuse have we got for not forgiving other people as hard as it might be? So what binds all these virtues together? What binds together compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and forgiveness? Well, it almost goes without saying. Love. Love binds these things together. If we put on these virtues like a robe, then love is like the, uh, the cord or the belt that goes around the middle and holds them all together. Uh, Jesus is love for us in the first place, and then our love for Jesus and our love for humanity that comes from loving Jesus. It's what makes all of this possible. At the very heart of Paul's teaching, at the very heart of the gospel, is love. And that is our starting point for examining these three relationships that Paul talks about. Uh, The first relationship is that of husband and wife. He says, wives, submit submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, straight away in our culture, that is pretty controversial, isn't it? Uh, that word submit and it conjures up all kinds of negative stereotypes in fact uh, people often seize on this and they take it out of context and they make out that Paul is saying uh, that women should be these meek little creatures uh, who have to submit to their domineering and overbearing husbands and uh, endure all kinds of horrible abuse Well, well nothing could be further from the truth In the ancient world, Paul's statement would have been controversial for other reasons. Um, It was controversial to suggest that women could voluntarily submit to their husbands, i.e. this is something that they choose to do. In the ancient world, no one would have told a woman to submit to her husband because it was taken as a given. She had to do it. She was, in some cases, forced to do it. Not so in Christian households. So is Paul here pointing to male headship within the family? Uh, Well, I don't think we can say that conclusively. Uh, But what do we even mean by headship? Because it can't be about hierarchy or dominance. And if, as I'm sure must be the case, it refers to the exercise of godly leadership from a place of heartfelt love, well, then our model of leadership is Jesus. Our model of leadership is servant leadership. So you could easily say, well, husbands, you need to serve your wives. And you could say, wives, you need to serve your husbands. It's a two-way thing. Again, in in, in Ephesians 5.21, Paul tells husbands and wives to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's not one above the other, but two working together. In Genesis 2, uh, God makes a woman from the man's rib, and this is symbolically significant. Uh, The bone is not taken from the man's foot, which might imply that uh, the man is above the woman, 
nor is it taken from the man's head, which might suggest that the woman is above the man. No, God takes one of the man's ribs to indicate that they are to be side by side, working together like a left and a right hand. Having said that, I would say, as challenging as it might be, that it does seem that there is some kind of extra responsibility placed upon the man within the family. For example, in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve rebelled against God and and then tried to hide from God, in verse 9 it says, But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? It would seem that the greater burden of responsibility was on the man. But if we think about our culture today here in Australia, the big problem is not men taking their responsibilities too seriously. It's more a case of men shirking their responsibilities, in some cases leaving their wives and children, or continuing to live as if they are single even though they're married, or leaving everything up to their wives or partners, especially the spiritual leadership of the family where that is even a thing. So maybe it's not archaic or chauvinistic or oppressive to remind men that they have a God-given mandate to exercise godly leadership within the home. And this is challenging stuff, so I'm not telling you what to believe, uh, just giving us something to think about, um, because we want to take all of Scripture seriously, especially when we find it really challenging. It's important that we engage with this stuff. So Paul does say, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. But elsewhere, as we've seen, he tells husbands and wives to submit to one another. And he tells husbands to love their wives. In Ephesians 5, he goes even further. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died for her. He died for her. So this isn't about rank hierarchy, dominance, or abuse, as some people uh, claim. It's about love, protection, security, and flourishing. The next relationship is that of parents and children. Paul says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. I think the assumption is that the parents will be loving and uh, um reasonable in what they are asking their children to obey, uh, though maybe not always reasonable from the perspectives of the child. Uh, The other day, a friend of mine posted, I've just asked my teenage son to pick up his towel from the floor. Apparently, he has to do everything around here. (laughs) So the word reasonable is subjective, but certainly in general terms, children should obey their parents. But it's not all one-sided. Paul continues, Fathers or parents, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Again, C.S. Lewis uh, captures how parents might embitter their children. A lot of C.S. Lewis today, but he's really good on this. He says, we hear a great deal about the rudeness of the rising generation. I am an oldster myself and might be expected to take the oldster's side. Uh, But in fact, I've been far more impressed by the bad manners of parents to children than by those of children to parents. Who has not been the embarrassed guest at family meals where the father or mother treated their grown-up offspring with an incivility which offered to, to any other young people would simply have terminated the acquaintance? Dogmatic assertions on matters which the children understand and their elders don't. 
ruthless interruptions, flat contradictions, ridicule of things the young take seriously, sometimes of their religion, insulting references to their friends, all provide an easy answer to the question, why are they always out? Why do they like every house better than their home? Who does not prefer civility to barbarism? Now, hopefully we all love our children. I'm sure we do. But if we close ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, we must not take these off when we're dealing with our own children. The third relationship in the passage, and the one about which Paul has the most to say, is that of servants and their masters. And he begins by saying... Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. People often use this passage to claim that Paul endorsed slavery. Again, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, It's important for us to understand that in the Greco-Roman world, slavery was an integral part of society. We don't know exactly how many slaves there were in the Roman Empire, uh, but in uh, first century, well, what is now Italy, uh, it's estimated that 20 to 30 percent of the entire population were slaves. You cannot dismantle something like that quickly without there being major ramifications and negative consequences for the whole of society. It would be like trying to close down the internet overnight. Uh, It might have benefits, but there'd also be a whole load of stuff that would just collapse. And to be honest, Paul's top priority was not to dismantle the institution of slavery in the ancient world. His priority was to proclaim the gospel that people might repent, put their faith in Jesus, and live according to Jesus's kingdom values. Now, it has to be said that slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not like that of the transatlantic slave trade, you know, where they literally went to villages in West Africa, kidnapped men, women, and children, shackled them, transported them across the ocean like animals, and then they were forced to work on plantations uh, in the Americas and the Caribbean, uh, an absolute uh, travesty. But th- that wasn't how it was in the Greco-Roman world. Slaves were more like employees, Uh, sometimes they'd even be like a member of the family. Uh, They were often well-educated, they could own land, they could even buy their own freedom. The situation provided them with a home, food, protection, and security. In other words, it was a mutually beneficial arrangement, and it prevented uh, a large chunk of the population, the very poorest, from being completely destitute. So that's why you couldn't just dismantle it overnight, as it were. Even so, in a society where people are trying to live within the parameters of Jesus' radical new kingdom, any form of slavery is bound to come under critical scrutiny. I love Paul's letters to, or letter to Philemon. It's about an escaped slave, Onesimus, who ends up in Paul's service whilst he's in prison. And Paul writes to Philemon, who is Onesimus' master, but also a member of this church in Colossae. And Paul urges Philemon to take Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a dear brother in Christ. 
In fact, Paul refers to Onesimus as his son. He says, I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. We see Paul at his most tender and compassionate when he's talking about this escaped slave Onesimus and referring to him as his son, as the closest member of his family. And I think this demonstrates how Christianity, how the gospel subverts and eventually dismantles all unjust structures and systems. So Paul's number one priority was not to dismantle slavery, but to proclaim the gospel. But in so doing, when people start to live according to the gospel, they realize that these, that, that all of those put their trust in Jesus are their brothers and sisters in Christ. And they realize that these structures are unjust. In fact, it's, uh, it's that that led Christians in uh, Britain to abolish slavery. And uh, that was the, the first nation in the history of humankind that abolished slavery based on what they found in the Bible, based on their Christian faith. Indeed, today's passage ends with this. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. In other words, if you do wrong by these slaves, your privileged position will not help you. You will still be accountable to God. So we can see that the gospel ushers in a scenario where the distinction between slaves and masters becomes irrelevant. They are dear brothers in Christ. And... um, I actually wrote an article on this in uh, for June's newsletter. I go into a lot more uh, detail. Uh, as the, the article is titled, uh, Does the Bible Endorse Slavery? It absolutely doesn't. It condemns it uh, in, in unequivocal terms. Um, you might want to go back and read that article. But what we can take away from this is a work ethic. Uh, we're not slaves, but we all have employers or uh, we do voluntary work or we have tasks that we have to get done. And the work ethic that Paul prescribes for slaves should be the same for us. He says, slaves obey your earthly masters and everything and do it not only when their eyes on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. In other words, and, and um, before I say that, it's uh, been noted that integrity, integrity is how we behave when no one else is watching. How we behave when no one else can find out how we behave. That is integrity. So in this case, in other words, uh, don't be the office worker who spends half their day on social media and then switches screens every time a manager walks into the room. Don't be the uh, the laborer who stands there with his hands in his pockets watching his uh, colleague dig a hole. Be the one to dig the hole. Uh, don't be the employee who keeps pulling sickies unless you really are too ill to work. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. If you're working McDonald's, be the best McDonald's employee that you can be. If you're the chief executive officer of a large multinational company, be the best and the fairest and the most ethical CEO you can be. Whatever we do in life, 
we are working for God and we are representing Christ. Let's put our heart and soul into it. And this kind of work ethic will glorify God. It'll be a wonderful witness to those who don't yet know Jesus. And in all likelihood, it will further our careers, although that's not our motivation for behaving in this way. Uh, Moreover, in most cases, it will lead to better relationships with our work colleagues. And this passage is all about relationships. Life is all about relationships. First and foremostly, our relationship with God, and then our relationship with everyone else, with others. Uh, Last week, we saw how we take off the old self with its practices. We get rid of those things that will damage and harm our relationships with God and with others. And this week, we've seen that the next step is to clothe ourselves with the kind of qualities that honor God and enable our relationships at home and at work and in the church to thrive and to flourish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, thank you that uh, we find such challenging things in your word. And we recognize that we must be clothed with compassion and kindness, gentleness, patience, uh, that we bind it all together with love. And this must be our approach to all our relationships. We forgive those who have wronged us and we return evil for good. And Father, this is really hard. We recognize that. We pray that you will help us, help us to be the people that you have created us to be. Help us not to just stay the same, but to keep changing and being transformed so that over the months and the weeks, so the months and the years, we can, we can see uh, that we are changing, that we're, we're, we're clothing ourselves with these qualities more and more. And we ask for your help with this in Jesus' name. Amen.